Amen. Amen. May I have a seat. Thank you, worship team, for that time of worship. Uh, two incredible songs. So good. Um, good morning, everybody. Morning. Man, you are alert. I was good. Good morning. Glad to see everybody this morning. I uh, hope you're having a great day. hope you are rested, uh, all nice and rested and, and doing well in that regard with the extra hour of sleep last night. Um, if you got that extra hour, praise God. If you didn't because your kids still wake up early like me, praise God still, right? Amen. Well, uh, I'm glad to have everybody here with us in person and those of you online. If, if I didn't have a chance to meet you yet, if I don't know you, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here and I'm grateful that you are with us. And as we are continuing in our time of worship, before we open the Word of God, we want to mention to you uh, that uh, because of COVID still, we're not passing our offering plate, as you know, uh, if you've been here. Uh, but you do see the options on the screen for you if you would like to continue to give to the mission of Holmes Avenue and what God is doing here. Uh, you can text to give. You can go to homesavenue.com forward slash give, or you could do the QR code uh, and, and give that way. It all goes to the same place. Now, we have been studying through the book of Acts for some time now since August, and we are going to continue to do so for the next couple of weeks. We'll actually take a break next week, and Dr. Nate Johnson from Charleston Bilingual Academy is going to be with us. He's also one of the elders, pastors at Friendship Baptist, so we're excited to have Dr. Nate Johnson with us next uh, Sunday. Pastor Walter and I will be here, and we're going to do our commissioning of and praying over of our Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes that day, and it's going to be a great day. But we wanted to, uh, as we are continuing to move forward, we're pursuing a partnership with Charleston Bilingual. We wanted to have Dr. Johnson before you, and so he will be here preaching uh, for us next week just so you can get to know him a little better. He is very, very animated and loves the Word and preaches phenomenally, so I think you will very much enjoy that next week. So today we are continuing in the study uh, and specifically looking at this account of Stephen, uh, following up from Pastor Walter's message last week where he covered the beginning of Stephen's speech. I'm covering the end of Stephen's speech in chapter seven, and then we'll take the break next week, and then we will end the Faith Persecuted series of Acts that Sunday, right before Thanksgiving, uh, as we will then continue into the Advent season with an Advent series entitled A Weary World Rejoices. So we're really excited about that. Uh, some of our, our sister churches in the area, uh, Friendship, Cooper River, Portside, and Center Point Church at Remount, they're going to be preaching through the same series. To uh, it's, it's really cool to see us all partnering together in that regard. So uh, we are excited about that. But today, as I said, you see on the screen, it says the consequences of rejecting God, Acts 7, 35 through 53. And what we're seeing in this today, it's the, uh, the conclusion of Stephen's speech, and he is going to be addressing some pretty significant things. The people, they've rejected God, and he's giving examples of that. And then I'm going to tie it in at the end with the application that's very personable uh, to what he's saying to the people of the consequences of that rejection. Now, as you know, we usually stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and we still honor it, but this is a little bit of a lengthy passage, so I'm going to have you continue to sit. Uh, but we're going to start in verse 35, so if you would, let's read the Word of God together. The Word of the Lord says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Talking about there where Moses before the burning bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt <clears throat> and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. 
This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey them, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us a God who will go before us. And for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphim, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Our fathers had a tent, in the, a tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with us, Joshua, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before their fathers. So it is until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my, did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. Lord, we are so grateful, God, that you are our Abba Father. We are so grateful, Lord, that you are sovereign God over this world and Lord, just as we sang at the beginning of our gathering, you are such an awesome God. So many ways that we could just describe how awesome you are, Lord, and the ways in which you move and work in our lives, Lord. And the grace and mercy you show to us daily that we do not deserve. Because on our best day, Lord, we could give you only filthy rags. Lord, your grace and mercy is so profound. It's life-saving, it's life-changing, it's eternal because of the finished work of Jesus. And Father, we honor you. We realize who you are, God, a holy, the holy God. And we are your people. And now, Lord, your word that has been preserved for centuries upon centuries, Lord, it is being proclaimed now, and I pray, Lord, that you would be with me as I proclaim it. Lord, have your way in us. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to see how the people that Stephen addressed rejected God ultimately through rejecting his messengers, his eternal kingdom, thus having to face the consequences. So if you're taking notes, I pray that you are. You'll see there on the screen your first point that we'll cover today is the rejection of God's messengers is a rejection of God. Rejection of God's messengers is a rejection of God. Let's look at 35 and 36 again. This Moses whom they re rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. 
This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. We see that Stephen points out how the nation of Israel rejected God ultimately through the rejection of Moses, despite the obvious signs that God had sent him to be a ruler and a redeemer for them. They had originally rejected Moses, much like Stephen, or excuse me, Joseph's brothers did with him. But when he came the second time, they had accepted him, much like Joseph did with his brothers. You have to wonder for Stephen in this moment, knowing that they should know their history. And Pastor Walter gave a great description of their spiritual history last week. Knowing that what they should know, or what they say they know, you have to wonder for Stephen in that moment, he's got to be frustrated. These people, the ones who, who condemn Christ to die, who murdered Jesus, they, they ha- he has to stop and think, you, you guys are missing the parallels. You don't see the way in which God used Moses In the same way that God used Moses for our forefathers, he did the same for us through Jesus. And you're missing the point. They rejected Moses. Thus, they rejected God. And Stephen points to the reality. By their rejection of Jesus, they're doing the same exact thing that their fathers did before them. That's going to be a recurring theme that we see today. Look at verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. We again see the Stephen's words. He points them to Moses, and he's tying in the fact of what Moses himself said. And that reference specifically is Deuteronomy 18.15, where he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. It is there in that moment in Deuteronomy, as Moses is before the people, he is telling them the reality of who is to come. The Redeemer will ultimately come, and that will be King Jesus. Verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles given to us. Now, there in that moment there of verse 38, as I read, we in the ESV translation that we're using right now, it says congregation. And there in that, that word that it comes from is ecclesia, and it's to describe the people. Now, like I said, it's translated in our version as congregation, and it's the most commonly defined as the called out ones. This is where in the New Testament we see the reference for the church. So these people, these are the people of the congregation that Moses is speaking to, And as Pohill in his commentary states, the parallel is seen between the place of Moses in the assembly of Israel and the place of Jesus in the new covenant assembly. Pointing to these differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. Let's read 39 through 41. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who has led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Stephen again points to this specific sin done by their fathers, done by those that were there before him. He calls out this creation of the golden calf in the book of Exodus as we read. God has redeemed the people. He has taken them and rescued them from the bond of slavery in Egypt. 
And there at Mount Sinai, while Moses is up on the mount before God, spending that time with God, they get antsy. They get tired of waiting. Do we get tired of waiting? They get tired of waiting. And so there in that moment of waiting, they realize, man, we don't know where Moses is gone. We're not going to worry about him. We've got to figure something out. They weren't okay with just God in spirit, his present being amongst them, and what he had already done for them. So they told Aaron, hey, make something for us. We've got to do this. We've got to have this. We need something tangible in front of us that we can worship. And it says there again at the end of that verse, they offered a sacrifice to the idol, and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Major sin. Major problems there. They got tired of waiting. They got tired of trusting God, relying on God. So in that moment, they said, we're going to take matters into our own hands. And so they made this thing. They worshiped this thing. They provided sacrifices to this thing. And they rejoiced in the work of their hands. All the while, God had just taken them out of slavery. God had just healed them in a sense in that way. They're not being bothered by the yoke of slavery of that. God has redeemed them. God has rescued them. God parted the sea so that the entire enemy could be swallowed up in it after they walked through. Yet that wasn't enough for them. So they had to do this so they could rejoice in the works of their hands. All the while missing the rejoicing of the works of the creator who just rescued them. Major issues there. Now, they couldn't see the reality of God's deliverance. They even wanted to go back to Egypt. All of these issues there, God has just shown them this grace. And I just want to stop for just a quick moment for just a a quick applicable point for us. As we're hearing this about the nation of Israel and their history, as Stephen is calling out these things, I just want us to stop for a moment and and just ask a rhetorical question for us to, to ponder. Do we ever get like that? Do we ever get tired in the waiting? Do we ever get to be like those people that say, God, your hand has been so evident in my life over all of these things, but you're not showing up right now in the situation. I'm tired of waiting, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. We've got to be very, very careful doing that. Because last time I checked, you and I are not the sovereign God of the universe. We have to be very careful with doing those kind of things. Because the moment we do, go off course, and we've got to see the consequences of that. 42 and 43. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me to slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Stephen takes Israel's history and he compresses it there in that moment. He cites God's verdict that he gives, quoting Amos 5, 25 through 27. And although Israel, keep in mind of this, although Israel sinned against God with this golden calf and he did not trust him, they deserve the punishment of God. But Moses steps in as a mediator between them and God and says, God, please have mercy on them. 
He pleaded with God on their behalf and remembered the promise that God had given to Abraham, that he would make him a father of many nations, that there would be a promised land that would come. They were still on this pilgrimage through the wilderness to get to that promised land. Moses said, please remember your promise. And God remembered his promise and showed mercy upon them. Now, this prophecy of Amos that, we just, that I cited a second ago, in which Stephen quotes here in 42 and 43, it's from several centuries later. But Stephen ties it to the wilderness idolatry by Israel with their golden calf. And he does so because this golden calf is almost the beginning point of a long-standing history of idolatry for the people. And what does this say about their history and what happened with the golden calf? Well, it says very well as we know in Scripture that Israel was headed for exile in Babylon and beyond after the Exodus, which tells us that all throughout Israel's history, they continued to do what? They continued to reject God. The God who made the promise to their forefathers, the only one who can even do that, they would continue to reject God which is good news for us. Because do we not daily have moments of our life where we reject God? If you are in Christ and you are redeemed, you have been saved, you have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus because of his finished work on the cross, defeat of sin and death and his resurrection from the grave. Because of what Jesus has done and you are redeemed, Are there not moments in our lives where we choose this over what God wants? When we choose this over what God wants, that's a rejection of God. Thanks be to God that we have grace and mercy that is given to us every day. Amen? I will say this. If you are here, are you listening online, and you do not have a relationship with the Lord, you have not been redeemed, there is a rejection that you have given to God but there is still hope. I'll talk more about that in a moment. This shows the continual need for the Redeemer. This shows that God knows what he's doing, even when for those people, it didn't look like he knew what he was doing. God knew all along because he had made the promise in Genesis 3 of what would happen to the serpent in the end. God gave the first good news to the proto-evangelium that it would come. It was all part of God's redemptive plan playing out even through today until the day of which Jesus comes back to make all things new. So that's a rejection of God's messengers is a rejection of God. The moment they didn't want anything to do with Moses, they didn't care about what Moses had to say. They said, Moses is gone. He's up there doing something. We're not worried about it. We're rejecting him. Stephen's making it clear as they rejected Moses, it's a rejection of God. Secondly, rejection of God rejects his eternal kingdom. Rejection of God rejects his eternal kingdom. Verse 44. Our fathers had a tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. And what is this tent of witness? It's the tent or the tabernacle. It was designed and ordered by God and was there until the time of King David. The people had no sanctuary in the wilderness, no reminder of the presence of God in their midst. So this tent of witness, it housed the tables of the law, known as the testimony. It's also commonly referred to as the tent of testimony. 
And it's the place where they would have this for these moments. God gave direct demands of how it was to be built and constructed. And even the writer of Hebrews, he ties in through what Jesus has done with his finished work and the eternal kingdom. He references this tent. Listen to this, Hebrews 8.2. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The true tent, eternity, the eternal kingdom in heaven, where Jesus sits and reigns and will do so for all time. 45 through 47, let's read it together. Our fathers in turn brought it, with, brought it in with Joshua when they uh, dis- dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So after entering the land of Canaan under Joshua's leadership, they took the tent of witness with them. Together with the sacred ark, the tent remained with them until the time of David. And David desired to have a nobler dwelling place for the ark of the covenant, which was what? God's presence among the people. And he wanted it more than just in the tent. So God tells the prophet Nathan, I'm giving you a little bit of history here. God tells the prophet Nathan, that this will not come during David's time, yet his son will do so. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, he says this, God ultimately desired no house of cedar for him. Instead, he would himself establish David's house, his dynasty, in perpetuity. Nathan informs David that his son and successor will build a house for the name of God, eternal kingdom. As far as Stephen is concerned, the building of Solomon's temple did not meet that promise. That's what he's addressing here. The eternal establishment of David's throne was what he was most concerned with because it points to Jesus reigning forever and ever and ever. And we see we're about to enter into Advent season, so this scripture right here is a common thing that we reference and we see but it's a beautiful picture of the angel's proclamation to Mary when they approach her to tell her that she is going to carry the Messiah. Luke 1, 32 through 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end, the eternal kingdom. Verses 48 through 50. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my, did not my hands make all these things? I love what Stephen does here. He makes it clear that the Most High God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, he does not dwell in houses made by hands. Being here as long as I have, I know this congregation well enough to know that you know that. This is a beautiful, beautiful place that we have. I love this sanctuary. I'm so grateful for the the campus that we have. But church, this is just a building. 
It's a beautiful building that God's given to us. But God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he indwells us. And that's why every day when we go out and about in our daily lives, we are his church on mission, doing his work that he has called us to. He takes this scripture to point out something important. He quotes Isaiah 66, 1 through 2. And in quoting Isaiah 66, Stephen's making clear that the Most High God, this creator of all things, he cannot be contained in a building. In fact, the Lord is reigning on his throne in heaven, and he will do so forever and ever. So as they reject God's messengers, they reject God. And as they reject God, they are rejecting the eternal reality of his kingdom. This leads me to number three. A rejection of God has eternal consequences. Rejection of God has eternal consequences. Verse 51 through the first half of 52. Stephen kind of turns his attitude now towards them. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? After laying the smack down, if you will, Mr. Ed likes to reference that, so I'll say it. After laying the smack down, pointing his hearers to the truth of the gospel throughout the Old Testament, Stephen directs his final words with this personal application. He calls them a stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, we've seen this referenced in the Old Testament text for the way in which God describes those who really just don't get it. Hard hearts, lost people. He also says that they resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Basically, Stephen's telling them, you are lost as can be. You're unfaithful, you're unbelieving, and you simply do not know him. Which for the people that are hearing this message, the ones that are on the council, the ones that are there before them, they are taken aback. They honestly have to be a little frustrated because it's something very similar to what they've already heard. We talked a couple weeks ago about being Christ-like and seeing this example of Stephen's life. And, and there were some real key things that we saw that Stephen went through that Jesus also went through. And we also see in this moment as, he, as he's calling out their sin before them, it's something that Jesus himself did as well. Luke 13, 34 through 35. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. We see there in that first part of 52, Stephen says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? He's pointing them to the reality that this has been a continual thing over and over and over. And just as they persecuted the prophets who prophesied about the righteous one that was coming, they did the same to that righteous one. 
second half of 52 through 53. They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as it was delivered by angels and did not keep it. The righteous one, King Jesus. He was betrayed and murdered by the same people that Stephen is standing before. You see, for centuries, there has been unbelief of the truth. And he's showing them that they have done the exact same thing that their fathers did before them. He's reminding them of that over and over. He's pointing them to the reality that things haven't changed. And these people that are on the council, they are supposed to be the elite of the religious. They should be the ones that know this stuff. They should be the ones that should have recognized the Messiah before them. But their hearts were so hard that they had rejected God. They had every bit of intellectual knowledge of what needed to be known about the Scriptures. But there was no change here. They rejected God. You know, Peter does the same thing with his sermons. This charge by Stephen shows that the old covenant, it's gone. The new covenant, the days of the temple and, and the laws in that sense of the way that, in which they follow them in that regard, those are done. The Redeemer has come. The new covenant has been established. And this Jesus, whom they've just persecuted and killed, he is the way in which salvation is given to man and peace be made between man and God. Again, 53 says, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. All along their fathers had resisted the plan of God. And this was the very purpose and reason by which he called them to be the nation and called them into a covenant relationship with himself. Yet the descendants had done the exact same And even in this moment, because we're going to see in two weeks when we come back to this, that there's no, oh man, you're right. We're wrong. We need to repent. No, instead, it frustrates them so much that they murder Stephen. They've heard the good news over and over and over since Jesus' death and resurrection. And yet they still reject him. So I want to just close with this. For many of us in here, we can hear this message and say, well, Brian, I, I, I'm not going to reject God. I, I know the Lord and I'm saved. And, and, and I say, thanks God for that. And I would say the majority, you're probably right. Perfectly all. But just as I said a few moments ago, there are times daily, I would say, in each of our lives where we have a choice. Yes, we are saved, we are justified, we will not lose our salvation. We are redeemed. But we have those moments where we say, man, this shiny thing over here, this looks nice. I think I'm going to go over here for a little while. Knowing that it is not of God. Knowing that it would bring Sorrow to the Lord's heart to hear and see us do those things, whatever they may be. 
and we choose this and reject what God wants for our lives. I just want to remind us as we have those moments and the Holy Spirit prayerfully does, his, does what he says he will do and he will bring conviction, I pray that it will draw us to repentance. If you're here in person or listening online and, and you've just been going through your life, you're not redeemed, you don't know Christ as Lord, the reality is that you have rejected him. And the Bible talks about the eternal consequence of that. There is an eternal kingdom, but there's also eternity separated from God in hell. And for anyone who is not in Christ, that is the reality. It's truth, it's what the Word of God says, and we will preach it. And the reality is there are many people that we love, that we care for, that we desire to see have peace with God, that do not have peace with God, and they will die separated from God. And it's not just this place where you just die and you forget about it all. It's an eternal reality. You're very much aware of what's taking place for eternity. And so I say this to say, number one, if you do not know Christ as Lord, today may be the day of salvation for you. And I want you to know that we are here to talk with you, to counsel you, to pray with you, and prayerfully even lead you to the Lord. But if you are a follower of Jesus, I pray that this reminder is there for you and it jogs your memory to say, wait a minute, so-and-so does not know the Lord. Now, I know I'm not responsible for their salvation, but I do have the God-given call to share the faith, my faith with them. We say it all the time, and I, and I hope it's finally starting to settle in. You're starting to remember it. We're going to say it till we're blue in the face until God calls us home or calls us away. We're on mission so that every man, woman, and child in our circles of accountability have multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. That means everybody that we encounter on a daily basis. We don't know the reality of their salvation. We don't know if they know Christ. The harvest truly is plentiful around us every single day. So I pray that we're living on mission, knowing that reality. Because things are crazy out there. And people desperately need to know the life-changing message of the gospel. Let's take a few moments to quietly reflect and pray and ask God, Lord, what are you saying during this time? And then we'll sing, what a beautiful name. And then we'll, we'll close our gathering. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, you are so good. And Lord, we thank you for your word, which is truly living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed us 
that you have made the way for anyone who would repent of their sin and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their heart that God has resurrected them from the grave, then they will be saved. Or we thank you for that truth. And Lord, I pray for every person listening to me within the sound of my voice, whether they're physically here or they're listening online. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would make clear where they are in relation to you. Lord, I pray, Lord, that they have not rejected you. Lord, I pray, Lord, that they would see that they desperately need you. And Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would draw near. And Lord, that you would redeem them. Lord, for the one that would say, I I, I am not redeemed, I am not saved. Lord, remind them, Lord, that there is still hope because there is still breath in their lungs and that they can be redeemed. Lord, for the ones who are redeemed that know you, Lord, that maybe as they go through their daily lives with certain things in their life, Lord, they reject you in a sense because of what they are choosing over what you would have for them to do. Lord, make clear to each of us the errors of our ways in that regard. Convict us and draw us to repentance. And Lord, remind us of the reality that those that are around us that we love and care for, many of them are lost. Many of them desperately need the gospel. And Lord, although we are not required to save them, you do the work. We plant the seed. We water it. You cause the growth. Remind us of that and give us the boldness to live a life on mission. Father, I pray above all things, Lord, as always, God, that you would have your way. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.